0: Good morning and uh, happy Father's Day. You might have noticed on your way in that there's a table there uh, with cliff bars for fathers uh, and on the other side on the desk we have the the books that we had purchased for Mother's Day but weren't able to distribute uh, there so please pick one up. Um, When I was shopping for these I was actually looking for the Power Bar brand. It's what I was hoping to get but I couldn't find any in town here. But we, we kind of generically call these energy uh, workout kind of bars, power bars, and uh, I was thinking about that because it ties in with my message, and I, I hope that uh, you, the men here today will pick one up, and later on, today or another day when you eat it, you'll, you'll, you'll remember uh, the challenge that we have here today. Um, I think there's no secret to the fact that, that men have a tendency more than women towards wanting powerful things. You just have to go shopping for a motor vehicle with a woman to know that. Uh, the women tend to look at the paint color, and if there's a good spot for a coffee cup, uh, the men want to see what's under the hood, what kind of power might be there. Of course, those are stereotypes, they don't, they don't go across everybody, but that is um, kind of a generality. Um, Take, for example, something like a quilting bee or a knitting circle. Uh, more attractive to women than men. Uh, although men will sit in a circle if you put in the middle of that circle a ring with two guys with boxing gloves. And uh, to see who's more powerful, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's there. And so maybe, maybe there's a, a less of a correlation, but, but a power bar versus a, Hershey, a chocolate kiss or something like that. Um, but what I, what I want to challenge us this morning is this, as men especially, women of course too, but, but how about seeking the kind of power to overcome evil desires and become champions of virtues in our families and our community? How about setting that as a goal as men, to become the kind of men that have power to overcome evil desires and become champions of virtue in our families and in our societies? That's my, that's my challenge. And, and it's not just my challenge. I believe this is the challenge that comes to us from the next book, the one we're looking at this week, which is Philippians. It's an interesting relationship uh, between this letter and uh, Paul's life story. We recognize Philippians as the, as the letter in the New Testament that's focused on Joy. Uh, that tries to teach us the kind of joy we can have that would that would sustain us in joy even in the context of suffering and it 's not just a bunch of words because we know at least ten years before Paul wrote this letter when he first visited Philippi, he was, he was, he was beaten and put in prison for the gospel, and while in prison, he was singing he and Silas, his partner were, were singing praises of joy to God when the earthquake came and broke them out of jail. And as a result, the jailer and his household became Christians, and we believe that that household became the, the, the center or the, the nucleus of the church in Philippi. So the, 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 the first thing in this relationship between Paul and the Philippians had this, this juxtaposition of suffering and joy that everyone knew was a witness of Paul's life. The Philippians, over all the years, have been Paul's most faithful supporters and encouragers. He points out in various places in his other letters that the Philippians, though not rich, are generous. And they, they consistently gave money and sent it to him so that he could continue in his ministry instead of having to pause the ministry to make money with his hands in his trade of tent making. And so we have some indications at least that that he was uh, uh, working in the marketplace with tent making, and then a gift from the Philippians arrived, and he could put aside his tools and go back into full time uh, preaching the gospel and planning churches. So they're very generous. They supported him throughout his time. And there's no indication in Acts or in the letters that there ever was a serious problem or controversy in the Philippian church. They remained faithful. They didn't get sidetracked by by all the different kinds of things that the other churches did. Um, They were faithful to the point of sacrifice in good times and in bad. And so as you begin to read this letter, uh, you see the tenderness and closeness of their relationship. Right there in the first verses when he puts his standard greetings to the people in the church, he uses more intimate language than the other letters. He uses the word joy. You give me joy. He uses the word partnership in the ministry. I think recognizing their financial gifts towards the ministry over all the years. Uh, he, uses, he uses the word confidence. He has confidence in the Philippian church to remain faithful and because that has been their witness. And he also uses uh, this, this tender-hearted phrase. He says of the church in Philippi, I have you in my heart. So clearly, though they haven't spent tons of time together, he hasn't spent days and days in in the city, they they have a close relationship. And the letter reads more like a conversation among friends around themes and topics that they all know well than it does like a teaching or an argument or or anything like that. He's not attacking some controversy or error in the Philippian church. He's not... um, He's not trying to make a lengthy argument or a theological uh, position. He's, he kind of moves around and, and jumps around a bit, all surrounded around the central theme, which is a poem uh, that we'll read in a minute uh, that, that describes Jesus Christ and the gospel. We know how conversations go. They, they just move around wherever they go. And that's kind of how this letter reads. It, it doesn't change topics exactly, but it, it, it moves around a bit. Now, the central theme is a theme that they were familiar with, Paul was familiar with, but I suspect that maybe you and I are not very familiar with this theme. So to, to illustrate that point, I want to put up a contrasting um, sentiment so here's a sentiment that if your eyes are open uh, for any length of time in our current cultural context, you'll, you'll just see repeated over and over again in different kinds of ways. Live your best life. Be the best you, you can be. And, and that's, there, there's certainly truth and, and value in that sentiment, but just take that as a model for life and put it against the model for life that Paul gives us in the letter to the Philippians. I'm reading from the message paraphrase. He says of his own life, what his life's about. It's a hard choice. The desire to break camp here and be with Christ is powerful. Some days I can think of nothing better. Now, we know what he's talking about, right? He's in jail. He's suffering. And some days he'd rather just die and be done with it and be with Christ. But most days, because of what you are going through, I'm sure that it's better for me to stick it out here. So I plan to be around for a while, champion, com, companion to you as, in your, as your growth and joy in this life of trusting God continues. So he says the, the reason it's worthwhile to suffer is because it's going to help you. Not because it's going to help me, but because it's going to help you. So a little contrast between Paul's motto for life and reason for living and what we get fed consistently here in our world, in our culture. We need to consider, because this is God's word, uh, what that means for us. I was trying to find some contemporary quotes that I could read that would kind of explain this to us. Uh, I know of a few books that have this kind of information, but, but it's hard to find in... Uh, Stuff in line with Philippians in our contemporary uh, Christian literature. I was thinking about this, and and I know there's stuff out there, but I didn't have it on my shelf. And and I I thought of an essay that I read years ago when I was studying church history. And so I'm going to read a few quotes from, from this essay. The author is Thomas Chalmers. He lived in Scotland 1780 to 1847, 200 years ago. And uh, he was very popular. One of the ways you can tell how popular he was is that at his funeral, it's estimated that more than 50% of the population of Endenbridge attended his funeral. So that means everyone who could get away from work or children or whatever came. And, uh, and that's because he had such an influence in the culture, in the city, and in the whole uh, country and even beyond. The history books, when you read them, say of Chalmers that he did not live in an era, but he single-handedly created an era in Scotland. And uh, I can't explain all of that to you, but I believe it's true. He had a huge influence. And and so I'm going to read some excerpts from his most popular uh, essay. And if you want to read the stuff in between these quotes, uh, just look it up. Thomas Chalmers on the internet Uh, the essay called, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. So you can tell from the title that he's writing in King James English, because that's when he lived, around the time when the King James Bible was translated. And so as I read these quotes, you're going to have to concentrate a little bit. Uh, Sorry to wake you up and ask you to use your brains, but concentrate a little bit and try to uh, understand his meaning here, because because he's right in line with Philippians. So, So here's the first one, early on in the essay. It is thus that the boy ceases at length to be the slave of his appetite. But it is because a manlier taste has now brought it into subordination, and that the youth ceases to idolize pleasure but it is because the idol of wealth has become the stronger and gotten the ascendancy. I'll pause there before I go on. So you, so you see what he's saying here. The young boy, his passion, his desire, his efforts are all going towards pleasure. It's his idol. It's what he's after. But as he becomes a man, he realizes that if he has more money, he can buy better pleasures. So his, the passion of his heart changes from seeking only pleasure to now seeking money as his idol. And then he goes on. And that even the love of money ceases to have the mastery over the heart of many a thriving citizen. But it is because, drawn into the world of city politics, another affection has been wrought into his moral system And he is now lorded over by the love of power. So you can see how one heart's desire is chased out as another one becomes stronger. And this is kind of the thesis of Chalmers' essay and the essence of his teaching. But he develops it a little bit more in this. I'm just taking a few quotes from this one essay. He He says again, It will now be seen perhaps why it is that the heart keeps by its present affection with so much tenacity. When the attempt is to do them away by a mere process of expiration, it will not consent to be so desolate. If only we still talked to that. Our conversations would be so much more beautiful, wouldn't they? (laughs) Let's read that again. I think you can understand what he's saying. It It will now be seen, perhaps, why it is that the heart keeps by its present affection with so much tenacity. So in other words, the thing that your heart desires, it just hangs on to. You can't change it. No matter how hard you try, your heart hangs on to its affection. When the attempt is to do them away by mere process of expiration, it will not consent to be so desolate. And so what he's saying is, your heart will not consent. No matter how hard you try with your mind or your willpower, your heart will not consent to be empty. It must grasp onto something. And so when you try so hard to remove those evil desires, you can't do it because your heart will not agree to be empty. It will desire something. So he goes on developing this theme a little bit further. Such at least is the nature of the heart that though the room which is in it may change from one inmate to another, it cannot be left void without the pain of most intolerable suffering. You can change what resides in your heart, but you can't leave it empty. It will suffer intolerably to the point where it will grab anything, something to fill the place of desire. And then, uh, coming towards the conclusion, he puts it this way. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. So he talked in the previous one about changing inmates in the room of the heart. And now he's giving us the direction that we should go if we seek to do that he's not writing a commentary on Philippians, but he's, he's telling a story of a very similar theme. And I can summarize it this way. In Philippians, God says, Desire for my son will supplant all other desires. Desire for my son will supplant or push out all other desires. What I'm going to do now is turn to Philippians. Again, read the in-between verses on your own. I'm just going to go through in a whirlwind tour through Philippians, reading a key verse or two from each of the different sections of writing in the letter. And then we're going to cap out on one of those sections for a little bit and dive in a little bit deeper. But I'm just going to summarize by reading a few verses and talking a little bit about each one. So he begins, as he does in most of his letters, with prayer. He prays for the Philippians, and their whole prayer is there, but I'm just going to read this part. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So notice, he's not really praying that they would overcome temptation, or that they would have better desires, or that they would be stronger. He's praying that Jesus Christ would be the center of their heart. And he's confident that if that happens, the other things will follow. And so think about that when you pray for people. Maybe you pray consistently that someone would... who, who knew Christ and you believe is still a Christian though living a completely different way what would you pray? well pray like Paul does that the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ would become evident that they might abound in the knowledge and depth of insight to be able to understand and see and know Jesus Christ that's his prayer he doesn't list the sins and ask that they have victory over them he says that they would know Jesus so we move on in the letter to another section after the prayer. I, ex- I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here he's telling them about his situation in prison, his suffering. What he prays for is courage, a virtue, that we will be champions of virtue. He prays for courage and he expects that the, the courage will come because Christ is first in his life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is dying gain? Because then he'll be with Christ. So he's focused on one thing, and he believes the other things like courage will come out of that one thing. Going to be a little bit longer passage here. This is chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. And this is uh, clearly a poem, probably a poem that the Philippians already knew, probably a poem that most Christians memorized as kind of a succinct encapsulation of what the gospel is so that you know, most people couldn't read, so you could memorize this poem, and then you had the gospel with you at all times. So here he's going to just quote this thing that, that I suspect was known already. He says it this way. In your relationship with one another, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus had. Okay, so, so just stop there for a moment and think about that. He's going to give some relationship advice. How can you have good relationships in your life? He says it's by having the right attitude. What is this attitude? Okay, here's the poem. Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here again, he's saying, if you want to have good relationships, look at Jesus. Have the kind of heart that Jesus had. Have the same thing in your heart that he had in his heart. And what we see in the heart of Jesus is that he, he emptied himself. He gave himself. He sacrificed himself. He never put himself higher. He took the last seat at the banquet. He took the worst plate. He waited till everyone else had eaten before he took the leftovers. That's what it's saying, the kind of person he was. And he left it entirely up to God as to whether he would be exalted or not. Even though he was God and deserved to be in the highest place. He had every right and reason and ability to be in the highest place, but he chose not to be. And yes, at the right time in his resurrection, God did rise him up to the highest place. But he left that in God the Father's hands. He himself lowered himself. I don't think you could go to any psychologist anywhere in the world and get better relationship advice than that. That's really all you need to know. Serve the other one. Make yourself lower. The next verse. We've got to run through Philippians if we want to get all the way through. Chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So now you can see how Paul is taking this example in Jesus Christ and applying it now to his own life. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, because like, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now I'm not going to comment here because the, these are the verses we're going to camp on at the end. let's read a few more to get through the the letter. In uh, chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And here we see that same attitude, only now instead of looking in the past, it's looking towards the future. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we, we know that in our bodies we're not perfect and we continue to sin, but, but, but our hope is in something that's coming. When Jesus returns and our bodies are resurrected and changed as His was. And so we put our hope there again in Jesus Christ, our desire to, for the future is Jesus Christ and what he will do. And then here I have, unfortunately, the wrong preference. It should be 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's kind of a summary statement. I mean, mean, there's not much excluded from that, is there? We, We sometimes have the impression that I can do religious things through Jesus Christ. And I can do work and, you know, play and stuff through something else. But he puts this in, in a different way. He says, all things through him who gives me strength. Nothing is excluded from that category. And then again, in, in uh, verse 19, And my God will make all your, will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So if I give him everything, I will lose nothing because he will supply everything I need according to his glory. But what I need comes from Jesus Christ, not from other desires. So I think you can see in that, in that just taking a few verses, one from each kind of section of the, of the book, of the letter, that this really is the abiding theme throughout this letter. So I think the central verses, the kind of ones that describe this all out and the rest of the verses kind of expand this concept or or fill it in, is right here. So let's take a look. I think as we look at what Paul's written here, what God is giving to us in his word here through Paul's pen, we see a bit of a contrast set up. We see two categories of things. And I want to highlight them for you. The first highlight I put in red, and these are the things that we're, we're seeking to avoid. These are the things that we don't like in our life. Now, he doesn't put a lot of description here. Other places in the letter, he describes them in more detail, but I think the purpose here is that you would fill in the list. So it's, it's homework. It's work for you to do right now. So we start out like this, but whatever word gains to me. Okay, so think about that for a moment. He doesn't give you the list. He doesn't tell you what those things are, but you know the answer. What are the things in life that you've sought to gain? Whatever it is. I don't know what your list is. What have you put your effort behind to gain? Some might be tangible things, like certain items of property that you could buy. Some might be relationship things, maybe a number of children. Some might be retirement things. I don't know what your list is. It's open here. Whatever we're gaining. Okay? So that's, that's one thing. But, but what, we, what we realize if we're honest with ourselves and we think about that list, we realize very quickly that many of the things, if I'm honest, that I seek to gain are really not that commendable. And if they're not, even if they are things that are maybe a bit, you know, okay, sometimes the methods to get them aren't that commendable. So as we start to think about that, we think about, you know, maybe back in our childhood lying to our parents or our brothers and sisters. Remember Jacob stealing the birthright from his brother? Those kind of things. I don't know what you did maybe compromising on the job site, our ethics. And as we start to think about these things, we realize that our life is getting filled up with evil. Most of those desires to gain things are motivated by selfish ambition, to look better than the neighbors, to have pleasure for myself. And then he goes on and he talks about What is more, I consider everything a loss. Now, answer me this. What is excluded from the category of everything? And then he goes on. I have lost all things. What is excluded from the category of all things? Okay, so he's taking not just the things that he sought to gain in life, but everything and all things... And he's recognizing that in all of the things of his life, there's the tentacles of evil. There's the tentacles of destruction. There's broken relationships. There's things he's embarrassed about. In all the things of his life. And so as he's examining his life, and he's asking us to examine our lives, he's saying, there's nothing good in there. Oh sure, we dress it up to be good to look good to others but he considers it garbage i consider them garbage now we need to i think we need to use paul's actual words here and so if you're thinking about what does he mean by garbage here's what he means this summer when you go camping instead of going to the showers and the flush toilets up by the clubhouse walk down that mosquito infested path to the little used outhouse. And then leave your deposit there. That's garbage. That's the actual Greek word that Paul uses here. He says, I consider all things that I've tried to gain in life garbage. It's filled my life up with refuse. And then he goes a step further not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So now he's taking, okay, I realize I filled my life up with a lot of garbage. But now I'm going to turn around and I'm going to look at the rules. I'm going to look at what good behavior is. I'm going to live by the law and I'm going to do right. And he realizes as he looks at that portion of his life that all the righteousness that he has sought to attain has also been garbage. And the reason is because as he tries to be right, I mean, just be honest with ourselves. If I've got a habit or a way of talking or a thing that I like that that is not particularly good and is producing bad in my life, and I manage through sheer willpower to push it down and exclude it, what happens? If you're taking a water balloon and just giving it a little squeeze, it pops out everywhere else, doesn't it? Now, hopefully, if I get rid of my drinking habit, the, the desires that are being filled by that are come popping out in a place that's invisible to the rest of you, because then it looks like I'm living according to the law, and I look pretty good. And as soon as that happens, then I become proud, because I'm looking holier than you, and I feel justified in judging you for being such an evil person, and look at me, I'm, I'm pretty good. So he's saying, even when I try to be righteous... According to the rules, it still fills up my life with evil. That's the assessment he gives us. Everything, all things in my life is garbage. There's nothing good there. But of course, you've been reading the words in between as I've been going, haven't you? So let's take a look at them. Whatever I've sought to gain, I consider loss. Why? Because now I want Christ more. I consider everything loss not worth holding on to. Everything I've accumulated, everything I've achieved, I can put it aside like Jesus did and sit at the bottom of the table and give it up as sacrifice for others. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. The desire for Jesus is pushing out those other things. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Why would I consider all these good things that I've worked so hard to achieve in my life? Why would I consider them garbage? Why would I consider them something I could easily give up for the sake of others? I'm willing to suffer even even to the point of death. Why would I do that? That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. A stronger desire, a better desire is taking over his heart and making all the other things look undesirable. And the result is not by trying to get rid of the bad is it gone, but by latching on the good, to what is better. And even when I've tried to be righteous according to the law, it hasn't worked out. It's just a deception. I make myself look good to other people on the outside, but I know inside it's not much different. I know the fruit. I know what it really is. Maybe I can hide it. But that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's what he says. How do I combat evil in my life? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings because like he, becoming like Him in His death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In Philippians, God says, Desire for my son will supplant all other desires. And it really is the only way to remove those desires from our hearts. Not by trying so hard to remove them, but by seeking something better. By seeking something eternal. By seeking to know the Lord Jesus Christ. As Chalmers put it so many 200 years ago, the love of the world cannot be expunged by mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is worthy more worthy than itself it's displaced it's removed not by trying to remove it but by desiring something else and the fruit of having our hearts change from desiring the gains of this world to desiring Jesus Christ is that all those other desires no longer have room. They'll just go away. We don't have to judge each other for our evil desires. All we need to do as a church is help one another know Jesus. We're all in different stages of pushing that out. But as long as we point at the evil, we'll magnify it. We'll make it bigger. We'll make it noticeable. But if we point to Jesus, it will be pushed out. It will disappear. It will take no effort. I put the word will in there. Not can, not may, not might. Will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. It will happen. But God bless those who choose this way before the judgment because it will go a different way for those who choose it when it's forced upon them. It will happen. But it can happen now. It can start to happen today. I pray that it will. In Jesus' name. I would uh, just like to close our time by reading Paul's prayer here in in Philippians in chapter 1. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of being here this morning. And again, Happy Father's Day.